Today's scripture comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elisha, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. During the month of September, we have been on a journey with Jesus and his disciples into lands beyond Galilee, into lands that were under Gentile influence. And in these northern territories, we have seen Jesus do the same sorts of things he did when he was in the more Jewish regions of Galilee. In the sermon scriptures, we have seen him cast out a demon from a young girl at the request of her mother. And we have seen him heal a deaf man who was brought to Jesus by the crowd. In scriptures we have not looked at this month, he feeds thousands with seven loaves and a few fish, repeating a miracle that he had performed earlier in Galilee. He also teaches and he argues with religious leaders. In short, he does work just as he had done it elsewhere, no matter what boundary lines he has crossed and no matter who his audience was. Now just before today's scripture, Jesus heals a blind man. I love the way the author of the Gospel of Mark places this particular healing story right before today's interactions with Peter and the disciples and the crowds because the healing of the blind highlights the fact that Peter and the disciples and the crowds are still quite blind to who Jesus is and where all of this is heading. At this point in the Gospel narrative, Jesus begins to try to remedy this problem, something that he will continue to do 
all the way on his road to the cross. For that is where this journey with Jesus is about to head. He begins this work of helping them understand who he is by simply and straightforwardly asking the disciples who they think he is. They have spent considerable time with him. They have seen the healings and the miracles. They have heard not just Jesus' teachings, but also what people around them are saying about Jesus. So he starts there. Who do people say that I am? And after they all answer, he asks the more important question. Who do you say that I am? Only Peter speaks up. You are the Messiah. Now that seems like an A-plus answer, right? But Jesus does a curious thing. He sternly orders Peter and the disciples to not tell anyone this. Now what is translated in our text today as sternly ordered is the same Greek word that is translated rebuked when Jesus gives the very same order to stay silent to a demon he encounters earlier in the gospel. This demon, you see, declared Jesus to be the Holy One of God, and for that he was rebuked and told to stay silent. Something interesting is going on here. Professor of New Testament theology, Dr. Feme Perkins, in her commentary on the Gospel of Mark, calls it out. She says, the disciples are no more able to use the titles Messiah and Son of God correctly than demons are. But why is that the case? Well, just look at what Jesus tells them next. In what will be the first of three passion predictions, Jesus tells the disciples that he will suffer. He will be rejected by the religious authorities. He will be killed. He will rise again. He says it plainly, and he says it clearly. And what is their response? Peter rebukes Jesus. In the most human of human reactions, Peter tells Jesus something along the lines of, No, this cannot happen to you. You are the Messiah. Other people say you are John the Baptist, or a prophet, or Elijah. But John the Baptist died. Prophets died. Elijah disappeared. You are the Messiah. You can't be killed. You can't disappear. You must reign. And this, my brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus has to silence his disciples for a while longer. Until they understood the full meaning of what Messiah and Son of God and Son of Man meant, their faith in him was incomplete. Theirs right there in that moment was a faith based on grand expressions of compassion that they had been witnessing in miracles and in healings and that they had heard in his teachings. And these, quite simply, 
were not the whole picture. The portrait of the Messiah was to include suffering and self-sacrifice. They had to know that so that their witness would be fulsome and right and true. They had to be prepared. As Jesus then tells not just the disciples, but the whole crowd, they had to be prepared to deny themselves, to take up their crosses, and to follow Jesus on that cross road. These disciples would come to know suffering and self-sacrifice for the gospel, most of them paying the ultimate price for being carriers of the good news. These words were very, very relevant for these first followers of Christ. These words were very, very relevant for Christians throughout the centuries who risked their lives to spread the gospel. These words are very, very relevant today for those who continue to risk their lives to spread the gospel in intolerant corners of the world. And these words are also very, very relevant for all of us here today, even if living out our faith will most likely never result in a threat to our lives. They are relevant because the Christian life is always going to be one that includes both healings and suffering, miracles, and self-sacrifice. That is just the way it is. As humans, we, like Peter, want the Christian life to be full of answered prayers, peaceful existences, and joyful journeys. But while there is no basis to say that God wants his most beloved creations, us, to suffer, there is also no basis to say that believing in God hides us away from human pain and suffering. Feme Perkins puts it plainly with two illuminating examples when she writes, Christians frequently think that if we pray hard enough, God will remove all trials from our lives. A family with a drug-addicted teenager might be pressured to pray harder and the kid will come around rather than for strength to care for their child and to find the right treatment and support. Parents whose asthmatic child has life-threatening allergies are convinced that if they pray before that child eats certain foods, the child won't have an allergic reaction. One emergency trip to the hospital has not convinced them that perhaps God is trying to tell them something else. I'm quite sure that if we take a moment to think about it, there are lots of other examples just like these that we have faced personally and communally. Perkins concludes, somehow these devout Christians have grasped the Jesus of miracles, but have ignored the word of the cross. Somehow these devout Christians have grasped the Jesus of miracles, but have ignored the word of the cross. So what does it look like to embrace the word of the cross? A word that Paul declares makes an 
absolute mockery of our human conceptions of a successful life when he wrote to the Corinthians saying, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Paul says, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What does it look like for you and for me today to embrace the foolishness of the crossroad? It is not likely to look like the road the disciples took or the road that so many martyrs of the faith have taken since then. It is not likely to look like that for you or for me. Last week, we hit pause on our usual Sunday morning schedule to make room for our first ever day of service. After gathering together for a brief time of worship, members and scout troops and neighbors and friends and family began the work of being the church in many different ways. Some gathered in the fellowship hall, packing shelf-stable meals for food-insecure persons by scooping soy powder and rice into bags, which, when prepared, will each serve a nourishing meal to six people. Some started in the kitchen, packing homemade cookies, which they then took around our city to community helpers at places like fire stations and hospitals. Some worked in workstations in front of and in back of Restore, packing potatoes into bags which were then provided to various food ministries in our area. Some gave blood, some packed health kits, some wrote notes of encouragement. That is what the crossroad looks like for you and for me. It's seldom going to be one big, here I am, Lord, use me moment. Although it might be. It's more like Fred Craddock once put it. Instead of laying down $1,000 on the table all at once and saying, here it is, God, it's probably going to be more like turning that $1,000 into quarters and dimes and nickels and giving them out one coin at a time throughout our lives. One scoop of rice at a time. One cookie in a bag at a time. One potato at a time. One pint of blood, one health kit, one note at a time. This is what paves the crossroad. And it's not just one day a year that we walk this road. As Pastor Dale mentioned, there are members of our church not worshiping with us now because they are doing their planned day of service work in the community garden of Urban Ministries now that the rain-soaked ground has had a little time to dry out. Our opportunities to suffer a bit and sacrifice a little for our fellow man, woman, and child are not squeezed into one square on our lives calendar. So may we go from this place as people who put faith in both miracles 
and cross, who work to perform works of the cross in big and small acts of kindness and grace in a way that becomes a miracle to those in need and that will paint a full picture of the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, whom we seek to follow. May all that we say and all that we do be done for the glory of God in the ways of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Jesus' ministry on earth showed us your great compassion and love for us, but also showed us that the road is not always easy and smooth. Help us, no matter how good or how bad our journey in life seems to be going right now, help us to see that you are right there beside us, that you are showing us the way. Help us to look into our hands and see the blessings that you have given to us and figure out how we are to expend them in service of others and for your glory. Thank you for the journey that you have placed us on. All of this we give you thanks and praise for in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.